Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast with Benji Nyson. This is our Giro d'Italia Stage 17, Vuelta Espana Stage 2 recap, both brought to you by Lacole running dual grand tours right now everyone's running on fumes you me benji the riders but we're grinding it out because you know we've only got about three weeks left of this season just under three weeks left and uh, before we know it racing will be gone for 2020 so we're making the most of it while it's here as i said the podcast is brought to you by lacole our partner for the giro and the vuelta they produce performance road cycling apparel and they provide the kit to Bahrain McLaren in the Pro Peloton. Bahrain obviously having a very good day with Tratnik winning a stage yesterday in that cold kit. We saw another man today in the bright orange up there, um, pretty prominent in today's Giro stage. So Bahrain have actually had a pretty good Giro in going in the breaks. If you want to check out the cold, you can go to www.lecol.cc, link in the description, and enter check out. Code check code at checkout checkout code <laughs> checkout code LR zero fifteen that's all caps LR zero fifteen for fifteen percent off at checkout. But moving on to zero stage seventeen, Benji, we spoke about this course design. Um, our services are available for consulting. If any race organisers want to hit us up or the Flam Rouge for designing courses, but we spoke about this on the preview, and they had the climbs in the wrong the wrong way around, uh, unfortunately, in terms of their difficulty for an exciting stage. It's 150, no, sorry, 204 kilometres, starting in Bassano del Grappa, where the local factory is, and then they did the two hardest climbs of the day first, two count ones, Forcella Valbona, 21.5K is about 6.7%, nothing to be trifled with, and then the Monte Bandone, which... Despite having the same average gradient as the uh, Valbona is, and the same length really, it had steeper sections. There's like a plateau in the middle, so it's actually a much steeper climb in. At the middle third or the last third was actually quite hard. So, so that was in the middle. That that crested like 80Ks from the finish. So that's a long way from the finish if there was a GC man trying to go solo. Um, so, yeah, that's... Yeah, that was our problem with it. Then there was a Cat 3, Paso Durrani, 10.5 Ks, 6%, not that steep. Then like an uphill false flat section. And then the Madonna di Campiglio, 12 Ks, at about 5.9%, with a bit of a plateau runoff at the end. Not a climb that's particularly terrifying for anybody. With good weather conditions, not much rain, and um, that sequencing of climbs, we didn't really expect too much from the GC men. But a breakaway obviously went... And as in all these Giro stages, the GC teams were content to let it get a pretty comfy gap, Benji. Yes, the breakaway was a large one, and it had some riders that inferred that some people in the peloton, like Apozzo Vivo, was planning something because he had three teammates in there, O'Connor, Manches, and also 
Gebreiksabir, so three men for MDT. Also, before the race started, had said that he wanted to do something. So if he wanted to do something, like you said, he'd have to do it on the first few mountains. Looking at the rest of the breakaway, we have the likes of Bice. Once again, he was the guy that is currently leading that kilometer classification in the breakaway. He has a bit of luck there because Eurosport and L actually counted the breakaways as in full and not counting them if only under 10 riders are in it. And if every breakaway was counted throughout this whole Giro, Thomas Gent would be leading that and not Mattia Bais. So yeah, it certainly shows that that classification has a bit of an odd meaning to it due to the fact that only half the breakaways get counted in. Nonetheless, De La Parte CCC together with Zakarin, probably the strongest climber of the two. Then Rodriguez was in there, not Joaquim Rodriguez, he's retired. Adam Hansen for a tiny bit. Guerrero once again for KOM points, but no Visconti, so free reign for Guerrero today. All KOM points that he could take were his, but the hand was trying to throw a bit of a, a dash into that by taking one of the KOMs as well among the parkour. Carter on the breakaway for Movistar to get a bit. Sepulveda, Cataldo, Filela, four Movistar riders. Then it's for Ineos, Van Hooke as well for Lotto Sudel, so together with the end, and Ulisi as the final rider in that breakaway. Large breakaway, but in the end, it started thinning out pretty quickly, and it became clear that the end seemed to work for Van Hooke, but then again, it's hard to notice because the end always rides in every breakaway he goes to because he keeps that same amount of watts going, and it seems to favor him usually when he goes in the breakaway. And today, that was not anything different. He was closing gaps to people that tried to attack on climbs and so forth. As I said, KOM points taken by Guerrero, some by the end, but I think that Guerrero is now currently leader in that classification. Let me confirm that in a second here. There we go. Guerrero is indeed leader, 198 points, 50 more than Visconti, who really lost it today. So it will be hard to come back from that. When it really changed was for me on the Passo Durone. We'll talk about the break first, I guess, and then we can go into GC. Um, on the Passo Durone, we saw that break split up into two pieces. And at the front, we had Zakarin, Van Hooke, Caratero, Cataldo, Gebrek, Zabir, O'Connor, and Dennis. So two riders for NTT still there. Van Hooke in that front group. And the second group on the Passo Durone, had Bernsteiner still in it, the man who is currently on 9 minutes 53 before the stage started, and at that moment was virtually on the podium of this Giro. So that's one massive leap, but the peloton still had to accelerate after that. Bernsteiner bridged up from that second group to the first one together with the end and Villela, and we had a, a large breakaway group, including two riders, three riders from Movistar, then Cartero, Cataldo, and Villela. But those Movistar riders, they didn't really do too well, I'd say. I feel like Cataldo attacked at a certain point in the race. He got a bit of a gap in the descent. And that's the only thing I saw from these Movistar riders because other than that, they just dropped and dropped and dropped on every climb. So rather disappointing to be in the breakaway with four riders and just not be good enough. Do you feel like they should have gone for a different tactic or something? I think probably Cataldo was their strongest rider and they burnt him with a really, really early attack when none of the other guys who were the serious stage contenders, Dennis, Tehent, Pernsteiner and O'Connor, none of them were doing anything. They were chilling, trying to follow a wheel. Well, apart from Tehent, Tehent's never chilling. He's always pulling, <laughs> um, even when they have a 10-minute gap. But which kind of doesn't uh, – it's kind of like he's on autopilot. He can't help it. Um, 
But yeah, they on the Drone climb, Drone climb. Those guys clearly showed they were they were who the stage winner was going to come from um, because yeah, it was just going to be another category one climb straight afterwards. So if you weren't looking to crash hot on the the cat three just before it then you probably weren't going to be doing well on the longer climb straight afterwards but they all came back together after there was a descent into the madonna di campiglio climb zacharin he was was on the hoods but he stayed on and it was actually it seemed to me either his teammate oscar uh not not oscar rodriguez um victor de la parte sorry the ccc was in the break he either got dropped on the descent or there was like a surge on the flat. I think the hand attacked on the flat. There's like a really short valley uh, just after the descent before the Campilio and uh, before like the uphill drag started. And the hand attacked trying to get a gap and Delapate was on the wrong side of that. Zacharin was there the whole time. And so he'd obviously stayed in pretty good contact after the descent. Then they got onto the Campilio pulling for a little bit, Pernsteiner, the Hent, etc., and then um, they realized, well, they knew they had a big gap on the GC guys, so they actually started playing cat and mouse and attacking pretty early. And main contenders, favorites in the live markets at this point with a large group like this were Dennis was actually the favorite, just ahead of Zacharin, Pernsteiner was third, and O'Connor was fourth favorite. And it was De Gent who was kept attacking. And I didn't know if he was working, actually, Benji, for Han Van Oka because it didn't make sense to me why De Gent was pulling often with the whole of this large breakaway behind him, Zacharin right on his wheel, unless I thought, oh, is he just setting up a Van Hocker attack later? Um, that didn't eventuate. So it didn't really make too much sense to me. And Zacharin was not following any attacks so when Dehent did attack rather than pull, he would lean on Dennis to close it. Rowan Dennis, I think, rode really selflessly today and kind of hampered his own chances in this breakaway, I think, by um, yeah closing down a lot of attacks and being alive to them. And it might, might have cost him in the end, although I saw him take a Coke can before the climb in the valley and maybe he wasn't feeling it, but still, every little bit counts. As well, NTT looking strong. Pernsteiner... He was riding. I think he had a little acceleration, but it's hard to tell with him because I'm not sure if he can. I'm not sure if he can hit 800 watts. Um, but I mean, still, he rode really well today. But it was eventually Ben O'Connor, the man who was denied yesterday by Jan Tratnik, who looked really strong. Both of them, the young Australian at NTT, he attacked with six k's to go, and. The re- he got a good gap 20 seconds straight away because this time there was hesitation. He timed it after there had been a series of attacks, maybe an acceleration from Dennis, Zacharin, De Gent, and it was O'Connor that went. No one was really chasing initially. And then, because Zacharin, I think, either had bad legs today or like not his best legs. And I think it was that. And also, he was riding, like, he straight up refused to take a turn today, um, like, at all. Sitting on De Gent, De Gent's pulling. And with Pernsteiner, so to hand and Pernsteiner kind of changing turns, but the gap was already at 20 before they started doing that. And then um, De Hent got fed up or tired of Zacharin sitting on, and he'd been working a lot, De Hent, and Pernsteiner attacked out of that group, moving up on GC2, going for the stage win. But then it was like three and a half Ks, 30 second gap, 35 second gap to Ben O'Connor. It was looking good, good cadence. The climb suited him, I think, a little bit more, this sort of climb. 
than like just this like he's better obviously on these climbs than the sharp pinch accelerating yesterday where Tranik beat him. And Pernstein couldn't really make much impact on that gap. Came clear became clear that O'Klein was going to win. Massive win for the young Australian. Um, his fourth pro win, he's won a stage at Tour of the Alps, came second yesterday. He's but yeah, it's fourth pro win, but obviously it's like he's clearly his biggest of his career. I'm not sure if this is like NTT's first world to win this season. Um, maybe they've had one before, but they don't win that often. So yeah, sorry, Nitzolo might have won one if it was if you won Britannia Classic or if it was European Champs. Uh, I think it was European Champs he won, so it might not have been that. And then Pernsteiner came second, so he moves up a lot on GC. Um, the Austrian from, I think, a 13th or no, 15th to 11th. He's now ahead of Jakob Fulsang. Third on the stage was to hand beating Zacharin in the sprint. Fourth, Zacharin. Fifth, Frank Heaney. And sixth, Van Ockham. We don't really need to go through the rest of the remnants of the breakaway. So, yeah, massive performance from Ben O'Connor. We've got a lovely stock of young climbers for Australia. O'Connor's not that young. He's 24. But, yeah, him, Hindley, uh, I think... Power if he keeps keeps getting a little bit better, Stanard in the rolly rolly stages or Gerard de la Panino style climbs or, or races, Seb Berwick, etc. I think yeah, we got stuff to be excited about as the, the young Australian climbers. Um, but yeah, did you think there was any chance that they could bring O'Connor back, Benji, or when, once it went to thirty seconds, were you like it's it's lights out? I hope that Bernstein had something in him because I had an ongoing bet on him. Unfortunately, that didn't turn out. He went up second. So very sad day for me today. Um, <laughs> in general, I do think that Bernstein is the kind of rider that has to do it from keeping up the same kind of pace. He does not have any acceleration. He's like the Tem de Clerc of climbers. That's how I see it. <laughs> because this man had a bit of an attack when he got away from that second group, but it was nothing with serious acceleration. It was more because the end didn't really respond to it, hoping that Zagarin would make a move. And it was kind of similar towards Thomas the end and Rubio in that earlier stage in, in the Giro. So Thomas the in similar situations, once again, stuck with people that are behind him. And um, yeah, you could call him a, a wheel sucker, but uh, that's a horrible joke. <laughs> anyway, GC... Uh, let's jump into that because there was some action there. At the start of the stage, we had the Koenig really move up and it wasn't really to keep the gap to the peloton under three minutes or something. It was to keep it at a margin where I think Bernsteiner doesn't bridge up and become the pink jersey wearer magically. And they, they did that quite innovatively in the sense that in the descents, they came a bit closer on the valleys. They rested a bit. And then on the climbs, they kept an easy pace, but decent enough to keep the gap to the front under that margin where Pernstein would endanger the likes of an Almeida. So the gap was going to around eight minutes max. And every single time they paced a bit, it went to six, seven minutes. And that way they kept that in the clear. But I expected more from people. But on the other end, I didn't. Because we said it yesterday that on the Bondone, the second climb of the day, there could be action and there should be action, but it is too far from the finish line with that Durone in the middle of that. That action can happen. I think we spoke about it yesterday. I brought it up that I don't think that GC was going to make a move on that climb. And 
it was exactly that. They wrote that climb at the pace of Ilio Kaiser, of all people. Like, do you think that at least someone should have tried it, or do you think that they're clever in some sense to wait for a stage like Stelvio tomorrow? Or is it an issue by the stage creators like we mentioned at the start today? Yeah, I'm not going to blame the riders because you're taking a big risk to attack with 80Ks out on a climb that isn't that hard. Like, how often do we see that happen successfully? Froome, in 2018, best Grand Tour rider of his generation, does that with a strong team with Kenny Ellisander setting that up on a much harder climb with Zonkelin and having a shredded GC group behind. So, and that worked. So... We don't have a lot of those situations or factors here today. We have a climb that's not as steep, Bondone. We've got a stage that's not as hard afterwards because the Campiglio is not that difficult. And we've got probably a lot more GC riders that would contribute to a chase, probably six or seven. And the person who would do that and be the most likely to do that, Nibali, who I think has okay legs, has no teammates to set it up. So... In that, so it it doesn't it doesn't make sense and it can't happen um, and that's why it didn't happen. Um, Sunweb aren't three minutes behind. Sunweb are like fifteen seconds behind Almeida. We've got the Stelvio stage tomorrow, which everyone's thinking about probably when they were doing this stage today. Um, so it was energy conservation and maybe they were going to have a little bit of an, a sprint at the end. But it, that's what we thought would happen. We thought, okay, it makes sense, all logical. Gets on the, to the Paso Drone, they're chilling too. They, they let the break go, um, quick step still pacing, and then they get onto the Campiglio, which I don't know if it was a, if we called it a fake news climb. It's not. It's pretty much, it is what it is, you know, between five and six percent, etc. Uh, a little bit flatter at the end. And Sunweb started pacing with Hamilton. And I was like, come on, guys, I just tweeted a nice thing about you yesterday or the other day. What the fuck is going on here? You've not paced on Bondone or all day, and now you're pacing intermittently on Campiglio with, uh, I think, Mosca, the Trek rider, like occasionally taking turns. I didn't know what was going on. Um, I guess it, it worked in splitting up the group because they've got, they like would take one-minute pulls and then come back to the front and then go off the front and, like, really accelerate it, and that seemed to work on the steeper sections on the Campiglio to split up the group. Um, so I didn't – I guess it was softening it up, softening up, and then I thought, okay, Hindley was pulling. I didn't like that at all because he's literally third on GC, and if we think he's going to do what we expect tomorrow on Stelvio, he's, like, second virtually on GC if Almeida doesn't do so well tomorrow, which isn't guaranteed, by the way. And – they were pulling with him. I didn't like that. And then next thing we saw, Hindley was attacking. And Benji, you were tweeting about this. <laughs> Describe the sequence of events with Hindley attacking on Campiglio. Like at least Sunweb tried something, but it was poorly executed, whatever they were trying. So in that elite group, two riders were relatively pulling the front to try and control the pace. And that was the Koenig, with Joao Almeida in second position and Masnada in first position holding a pace to prevent attacks, really. But one rider decided to attack, Jai Hindley. And, well, he got a bit of a gap. He got 5 meters, 10 meters. And Masnada was clearly not good enough to follow the pace of Hindley. So at a certain point, someone else was going to have to close down that gap. Maybe an Almeida, maybe a Nibali, maybe anyone, but not Kelderman. 
And what did Kelderman do? He decided to wait until the gap to Hindley was about 20 meters. And he closed down the gap, basically. He tried to bridge towards him and maybe thought that it was some kind of a satellite rider move. But that's not really the case because he only had 20 meters. If you want to prepare something magical, some 1000 IQ move, then he needs to have a bigger gap before you bridge towards him. But now Hindley was loose and you closed down the gap to him. So I don't know what Kelderman was thinking. I think he was just being somewhat egocentric and somewhat understandably going for his own chances here and making sure that Hindley's not the rider that tries to take his victory in this Giro away. And that's the same thing that Nibali said in an interview yesterday, that he was trying to get in those people's heads, in Kelderman's head and Hindley's head. And he said in an interview... Kelderman's main competitor might actually end up being Jai Hindley. And today we saw exactly that action. Hindley attacks, gets 20 meters, and Kelderman closes it down. And uh, I don't get it on a team perspective. On a personal perspective from Kelderman, who is leaving the team, that might be an excuse for closing it down and be purely thinking about himself here. And I feel like that's not really... A good thing to do considering you're trying to win a grand tour for your team as well not only for yourself but hey what's your take on it yeah i think they were trying to do the satellite rider thing and just botched it and then once it didn't work they at least they shut it down um and long story short they <laughs> a quick step went back on the front setting a moderate tempo masnada was shouting at people his own team <laughs> and kelderman etc they slapped i think peter Seri back on the front Pasted in, Almeida then won the – did he win it? Yeah, he normally wins it. No, he didn't actually. Sorry, I think there were no bonus seconds left on the line because the sat there's the breakaway mopped them up. They were all, all sprinting for 11th, and Gagan Hart, who maybe thought there was bonus seconds, sprinted to the line, and he had Hindley on his wheel who because there's one second difference between them, and I think Almeida uh, knew that there wasn't – yeah, he, once he saw that it wasn't uh, Kelderman – attacking he kind of didn't really contest the sprint at all he just followed Kelderman so not that exciting a stage but good win for Ben O'Connor no movement on GC from the main guys um full saying if he wants to salvage anything from this year it's going to have to be tomorrow stage 18 the big boy Whew, 208 kilometers and we've got two Cat 1s, a Cat 2, and the only HC climb for the Giro, they've called this an HC climb, it's first <laughs> out of the neutral zone, they do 14.2Ks, 5.8% descent, couple of valleys, then the uh, Hoffmanjoch, 8.6Ks, 8.9%, Cat 1, not an easy climb, descent again, then they got the feed zone valley, uphill drag, false side uphill, on the way to the Prato Alastelvio, and then they do the Stelvio, 25Ks, 7.5%, up to 2,750 metres altitude. Then the long descent, and then they climb up the Torri di Fraele, 9Ks at 6.8%. Not an easy climb either. I'm pretty sure that's, uh, it's got like 8% sections in it too. Stelvio's got a few Ks. It's pretty regular Stelvio, to be honest. Um, but it's got a few sections in the middle that are pretty hard, consistently 9.5, 8.5, 9, 8.5, 8.5%. And, and the Hoffman Yoch is hard too. It's got, it's got some harder sections in it as well. 
Um, I picked Miguel Angel Lopez to win this stage before the Giro started just because of the altitude, etc. Um, and tomorrow I am I'm unsure of who's going to win yet, Benji. I don't know if it's going to be a break or not. I feel like it will be a – I think a break will get a lot of time, but I feel like it's such a hard stage that they might just end up being brought back inadvertently by the, the GC group. What do you think? I think so as well. I think it's going to be a GC race. And, well, for my pick for the breakaway, if it does come down to a breakaway – I'm going to bring you back to a historical, monumental moment in Belgian cycling where Thomas de Gent ended up taking a place on the podium of the Giro there in 2012. What a wonderful stage. And I, it is somewhat of a biased pick, got to warn you there. This is a completely biased pick, but I think that if the, it comes down to a breakaway, Thomas de Gent will repeat history. And uh, he won't come onto the podium of a Grand Tour, but... He might want to redo it because it's a Stelvio and he's got a history here. So I'm going to call him if it comes down to a breakaway. Someone I want to be in the breakaway is the two riders I've been shouting at to go in the breakaway for the whole Giro, but they haven't. So I'm going to shout at them again. Please go in the breakaway, Walter. Please go in the breakaway, Pantra. You're sitting in the top 25. There's nothing to be gained by being 24th in GC. Maybe you just want that to say after this year, well, I got a top 25 at the Giro, but... What if you can get a victory on the pla- the, the Parco Nazionale dello Stelvio climb? No, that's the finish. <laughs> I mean, the Plato dello Stelvio, right? Or is it? I don't know the uh, climb name, actually. I don't know. Stelvio. Passo dello Stelvio. That's it. I don't know what Valter's been doing in the Giro. Maybe he's not yeah. well. Um, I don't know. I don't know either. But if it comes down to GC, well... I could either go for an extremely biased pick and go for Nibali because I hope that he makes a move as a Nibali stand myself. But without a team, I see it very unlikely. He He's lost everybody. He's got Antonio Nibali and Mosca, and he's not going to do it with Antonio Nibali and Mosca. And because of that, I don't see him dropping most of the Sunweb team on that climb, except for if he goes early and really does it 1v1 and probably blows up himself after a while doing so. So... I find it really hard to think about that and make sure that he can get away solely. It will be fought on the Stelvio for me, I'd think. I'd expect it to be there. 25 kilometers of climbing, you can't just neglect that as GC, guys. And if I have to go do a non-biased prediction, I think that Dow Gegenhard is going to win the stage and he's going to come very close to taking the Magliarosa. I think that Sunweb is going to fuck up in their Hindley versus Kelderman effect. I'm going with the back-to-back Australians. I'm going with Hindley to win the stage. Um, if it was on the top of the Stelvio, the finale, I'd maybe not, but the last climb I think suits him pretty well. Um, I think he, if Kelderman doesn't bring him back today, maybe if it was a harder climb as well, he would have got a nice gap and won the stage or would have gapped the GC riders. Um, but it's who knows what will happen tomorrow. It's a, it's a beast of a stage. Probably the most calories they're going to burn, you'd think, in any of the stages. So it's going to be cold. That descent off the Stelvio is going to be sketchy, you'd think. So, yeah, who knows what could happen. Maybe someone gets a big gap on the descent. I'm not sure how good Hindley is at descending compared to the other riders. Wouldn't even surprise me if Almeida does well, to be honest, because he's pretty good on the descents and the flats, etc. But moving on 
to the Vuelta Stage 2. Pretty simple stage, as we said, from Pamplona to Leckenberry. Three major climbs, a count three of no real moment, 7.2Ks at 4.8%, 6.8Ks at 5.7% in the middle, count three. Neither of them are going to present any issues for any GC riders, except Chris Froome. And then the last climb of the day was the Alto de San Miguel de Arala, which is 9.5Ks at 8%, which is a very difficult climb. It's like on those cement blocks it's not like real bitumen and you're like an irregular gradient to really steep then they got a descent with yeah an irregular descent all the way into leckenberry 151ks three climbs and yumbo visma and movistar were not having a bar of the breakaway once again today uh, i can't even remember who were in the break benji because when i see it's being held at 90 seconds i'm just like you're doomed so <laughs> enjoy the tv time and i'll wait until you get brought back yeah the breakaway felt pretty doomed at the start they kept that gap pretty low with the likes of aramburu in there alex aramburu i would have loved for him to have an opportunity here but it didn't really turn out i can already spoil that Amirel for fdg kupama fdg and we've got tim wellens for a lot of Sudel's second day in a row so He's clearly trying something. He there for two direct energy, total direct energy, not tour direct energy. That's uh, not a thing. Serrano for Cajarural. We saw him a bit yesterday, but was in the break today. So a break of five riders, some decent riders in there, some solid breakaway riders, but the gap was being held relatively at three minutes at the start. And it was only on the Puerto, Puerto de Urbasa, the second climb of the day, where someone of that breakaway decided to make a little bit of a move to Mullins attack when on one of his known solos actually got a bit of a gap of one minute 30 on the other breakaway competitors. But something happened after that second climb because in the peloton, they started speeding up quite a lot. Like we do add to that, that Froome was already at trouble at this point. So like you say, Froome, the GC favorite for Ineos, <coughs> is, um, is not looking too good. <laughs> um, nonetheless, we saw that Movistar was pacing a lot in that peloton. And we were thinking maybe something happened, but it was a bit of an echelon case. There was a lot of wind, Storm Barbarossa or whatever it's called, is passing through Spain. We saw it at the end of last stage as well with the rain and such on Arate. But here was really windy and the peloton broke up in multiple pieces, but no one really important was behind. I think Guillaume Martin was one of the more... I guess, more outsider favorites of this Velta that is behind, outside of him. I didn't really see anyone else behind. Am I wrong in that or am I just... Because just add me... I'll just add to this that nobody had a clue who was in the second group because this Velta coverage is relatively awful outside of the elite group. The graphics and description of who was in each group was just... The helicopter was like taking the, the photos from Mars. It was so bad. Um, I couldn't tell who was who was where, um, but yeah, it was. I only really think of the main GC contenders as Mars, Roglic, Coos, Dumoulin, and Carapaz. Anyway, or maybe that short sided. So I, I saw they were there at the front. Roglic was chilling, and we saw that Movist, not Movistar. It, it was Movistar last year. I, <laughs> I, I sort of had this Freudian slip because I saw him do exactly the same thing last year with Mikel Landa in the Tour de France. Andre Amador on a flat section when no one expected it. Now on Ineos, now with 
his former colleague at Movistar, now also at Ineos, Richard Carapaz, in the green jersey, maybe feeling the punch of the green points jersey, they attacked on this flat rolling terrain before the last climb. So I'm not sure whether they picked up the intermediate sprint points or not. I don't think they did. Um, again, the coverage made it difficult to see what was happening, but they got a decent-ish gap, and it was Movistar trying to relay initially. Then Yumbo Visma came to the front with uh, was it Martins pulling Dumoulin's father, and then... They didn't really make much of an impression either. He got tired, but then it was Movistar pulling once again, and it, they got to the base then. And it seemed like, okay, they're setting Carapaz up. Instead of attacking on the climb when everyone's watching and maybe Movistar are pacing, why not attack 5Ks before the final climb and when no one's looking, and then you're basically already onto the climb in the wheel of Amador. That's what happened, but... They got caught pretty soon, actually, maybe sooner than Ineos expected on that climb with Amador pulling. He pulled off and Carapaz had gone on his own, but the gap was like five seconds, and he, I'm not sure if he went full or not or if he didn't have the legs today. He was being chased pretty vigorously, but still by a pretty large group behind uh, by Movistar, who I think Movistar were the strongest overall team today, very good team performance from Movistar, um, not being sarcastic, like hats off to them. And... Then I think Luis Leon Sanchez, who he's in the Spanish national champs jersey, so sometimes you can forget that he's not on Movistar, he's on Astana. He attacked on this climb. Um, brave from him, but I thought that's a bit of an unusual name to be doing that. Um, it was a little bit too hard. He got brought back. And then I think they pretty much, there weren't too many attacks until the last maybe 500 metres to the last kilometre of the climb, Benji. It was kind of neutralised at that point before then. For Movistar, the strongest rider in the race was clearly Marc Soler, their domestique. I don't know if he was stronger than Moz. I can't say that, but he was pacing for the majority of the last section of that climb, and he kept it so that nobody else could attack. He kept up an extremely large tempo, dropping like, well, we can save Vlasov, but Vlasov looked better than yesterday. Grosha. Apparently, he crashed yesterday. Yeah, Grosha was one of the riders that dropped indeed, a bit unfortunate because yesterday was really strong, 15 GC before the stage started, but was unable to follow. And so I kept on mashing those pedals, kept on mashing those pedals. And one of the other riders that tried an attack at a certain point was Carapaz. He was being closed down once again by the Movistar boys. And it was only towards the end of the climb where somebody else really made a move. And that was Sepkas trying to, I don't know, get the KOM points or getting away from the group. Could be either one of the two because he had a KOM jersey, but I don't think he really cares about that, to be fairly honest. I'm not sure he does. And the person that was closing that down was once again the rider we've been talking about quite a few times as the rider that we see as one of the strongest riders in the race right now is Richard Carapaz. He was once again closing that down and Marc Soler closing that two-man breakaway, I'd say, down once again for his leader, Moss, who was on a tiny bit of a gap at the top. Together with Roglic, they were on like five meters or something at the top. So I'm not sure whether Roglic was calculating it in. Well, we're at the top almost. I can get to it. But I feel like if you're in that group and somebody attacks, you want to be on the wheel just in case. Definitely if you're in the red jersey and are the GC leader of your team, I would detect at this moment. So do you feel like Roglic was showing somewhat of a weakness or did you just think that he was saying, oh, okay, let's 
let's leave a bit of a gap open and I'll close it down in a second. Yeah, I didn't really think that was too much weakness. I think at the end of the day, Movistar got a nice stage win today with Soler getting a big gap on the descent where he just rode off the front and then was able to keep it and there was no there was no real section for any of the other teams to bring him back and Jumbo Visma didn't care about him being off the front. He lost over a minute yesterday. Ineos didn't have really anyone to pace for Carapaz and obviously Movistar, the strongest team, weren't going to chase. So once Soler got that gap, stage win guaranteed. But Ineos did a lot of work today too and Carapaz attacked a lot. And at the end of the day, it's Roglic who's the man who's gained more time on GC. So he's increased his gap from five, I think, five seconds to nine seconds over Martin and to 11 seconds on Carapaz because I think Carapaz got beaten by Martin in the sprint for uh, when he, Roglic, and Martin were sprinting for seconds. So, yeah, Roglic, job done again. Gap to now nine seconds to Martin and 11 seconds to Carapaz. So, yeah, I don't think uh, I couldn't really say there's any weakness from Roglic. I mean, I'm not sure what his plan was, whether he could have attacked at the top of that climb, but maybe he was letting Coos do it. Maybe the pace from Soler probably was was really, really hot. So he thought, oh, I'll just leave it for today. Um, but, yeah, great performance from from Movistar. Obviously, Soler posted up and <laughs> lost about six seconds at the end when he <laughs> was celebrating. So he obviously doesn't think he's going for general classification. He'd be probably... He'd probably be eighth on GC if he'd, if he'd ridden hard to the line. <laughs> um, but, yeah, maybe he just thinks he's there as a domestique and to get stage wins here or there. Um, but I don't think that's true. I think Soler is good enough to be a second foil for Movistar if used correctly. I think he's really strong. Um, and if they used him right, he could be a second GC leader. He's certainly stronger than Dumoulin, who is not having a good uh, welter so far. He lost nine minutes, Benji. Did you see that? That's crazy. Yeah. He launched, uh, well, he dropped from the group quite early on. And it was just after Hasing dropped that Dumoulin dropped. So I was like, oh, Hasing's coming back. And then I saw the number and the posture, and it was clearly not Hasing. So very early on dropping and not really looking promising for the jumbo strength. Bennett's stronger than him. Bennett was able to follow until relatively at the top where he lost about 10 seconds together with Bajoli. And Bajoli lost more time than Bennett in the end. So Bennett was able to get rid of Bajoli near the top and close down the gap again a bit more towards the, towards the group. So I don't know. I feel like Bennett, Kass, and Roglic are the three members of that team that are looking the strongest. I might have been a bit too harsh on Jumbo yesterday uh, in the sense that they had like five riders in the top 17. But I, I generally didn't notice Hasing coming back, finishing 12th. But I wanted to throw that to you. We've seen in yesterday's stage that Robert Hasing is working for Jumbo. We've seen Domestique's work for that team. And yesterday, I felt that Hasing just kept on riding for the line, even when he was dropped. So as a GC rider, uh, you would say to your Domestique's, most likely, if you drop, just loosen up because... You might as well save energy for the rest of these 17 days still in this Grand Tour. While Hasing did the opposite and just went AWOL to the line and finished 12th on that stage yesterday. So maybe he's not really doing the same tactic as an Ineos Domestique. When he drops, then they basically just sleep halfway and try and survive till the line. 
without spending any energy, any energy at all. So it's a bit of a different tactic, it seems. But today he seemed like Hissink did actually loosen up and lost 15 minutes. So I don't know why he did it oh, yesterday. I think, I but, think there's a reason yeah. yesterday. It was to help Dumoulin, who dropped. So he was like, get back to Dumoulin, try and pace him back. I think yeah, that's a good the call reason. then. Yeah, because um, he actually ended in the Dumoulin group. So good call, actually. Yeah. So um, all in all, that team is looking strong. Ineos looking stronger than the Tour de France for sure with Carapaz and well Amador, who is looking like a monster here. Sosa yeah. a bit under my expectations, though, but do you feel like there's any team outside of those that is doing as good? Do you think Movistar is on the level of Jumbo here? Uh, I think I think Movistar are deeper, like on the climbs. I think Movistar can control the whole day if they really wanted to particularly on some of these climbs, I think when it really gets down to the pointy end, Koos and Roglic is just so fucking strong. Like, <laughs> it's just ridiculous, those, that pairing. And, yeah, so I think Movs are a little bit deeper at this welter, but that's that's great. But Roglic and Koos are probably just one and two best climbers in the race uh, with Carapaz. And Mars third and fourth. Uh, but Dan Martin also having a lovely welter so far. He came third yesterday. He came third today, I think, when he was just behind Roglic in the sprint. Dan Martin wouldn't surprise me if he got on the podium too. I mean, you know, I don't want to jinx him now, but if he just follows wheels all, all welter and just loses bonus seconds to Roglic the whole time and that's the, the way the race is raced, maybe he gets on the podium as well. But... Been an interesting first couple of stages at the Welter. Um, I think obviously I was wrong to criticise Jumbo Visma for dropping Dumoulin more yesterday because he's he's done on GC, so he's going to be a domestique or maybe go for stages later. Uh, but tomorrow's profile is kind of strange. A Category Three climb, a really long, low gradient one, is how they start in this 165k stage from La Dosa to La Laguna Negra de Vinuesa. 17k is at 2.7%, so there'll be no GC action there. And I wonder if a break it'll be will struggle to actually get away there as well because, yeah, I don't think it'll be a breakaway tomorrow. Then they got a long valley, about oh how long. 40, 50Ks, 60Ks, and then they start a Cat 1 climb, which is would be a Cat 3 in the Giro. So I'm just it's not that hard, 6.5Ks at 6.7%. Just checking the profile, though, it looks like a yeah an undulating climb once again. So it's 6%, 6.5% average gradient, but the last K is 8.5%, and I think if... Probably check out Benji's Twitter to see if we burrow down in into that actual last kilometer. Maybe there's some walls in there. Um, so it's going to be a sprint finish, I think. And I think Roglic wins tomorrow again. Yeah, you said it. You said it on the preview. Roglic was your favorite for this one. Oh, really? I feel like it's a, a typical Velta stage in the sense that it's got this uh, wall at the end. But it's not as steep as usual, yes. Usually we've got like... 20% gradients on these walls at the end, but I don't mind it being a bit less steep because otherwise I'd say Roglic for sure. So I think that we're going to see uh, an interesting race and I'm going to... Hmm, good question. How long is the climb? The climb is 6.5 kilometers. Starting section, not that hard. I'm going to go for a stretch here and I'm going to say that the winner is going to be... 
I don't know. On paper, I'd say Roglic as well, but I want to give Valverde a chance. He was in the front group today. And if he has to do something in this Vuelta for stage wins, then it's going to happen on a stage like this where the climb is only seven kilometers and the last portion is steep, but the first portion being 6% and a half. So, yeah, I say I say Valverde, just give him a chance. Uh, I do think Roglic has a better chance, but my pick is Valverde for the uh, third stage. But it's clearly going to be, for me, the GC or actually 166 kilometers. You see an opportunity for a breakaway? Not really. I think Movistar will be interested. If I was Movistar, I'd ride this full for Soler. I think Soler could win tomorrow if they rode for him, um, to be honest. I think he's won the one one day race in Spain at the start of the year with a similar sort of climb, beat really Costa. I know it's a preseason race, but yeah, I think if they, rode for, yeah. if they rode for Soler, he'd have an actual chance to win tomorrow. Um, I'm not sure they will, but yeah, I, I hope they do. I don't think Mars has the kick. Carapaz obviously can win it. I'll be annoyed if Carapaz wins tomorrow and Roglic won <laughs> stage one. I had them the other way around. Obviously, Carapaz can win tomorrow as well. Um, but Groschartner suits him maybe a little bit more. I think it's a little bit hard for Groschartner to be winning. I think he'll be hanging on rather yeah. than winning. I think he's better at the 1,500-meter climbs than the 6.5K ones. But just trying to give someone a, give people a bit of an outside pick. For tomorrow's stage, it's a bit. It's always a bit boring to just go Rolich and um, Dan Martin. Dan Martin could win too. Yeah, true. I, I guess um, maybe if, but he's so close on GC. Rolich should just be marking him. You know, he would be so. We mark him so closely. Um, and Michael Woods it looks ill or suffering from that crash. Rather not ill, injured. So he he struggled a lot today too on a climb. Before it even got hard, he got dropped. So I don't see him contending for tomorrow, even though it's like Milano-Torino finish. You'd think he would be up there, but I don't see it. Um, you got any roughies, any outsiders, Benji? Not really. I don't think it's going to be an outsider, so there's no real point diving into them for this one, I'd say. We don't really have that outsider that has the ability of launching away on the climb and just being far already on GC. I don't think if Lazov is going to do anything here. I don't think if Martinez is going to do anything here. So, yeah, I think that is going to be the GC favorites indeed. I don't think it's going to be a breakaway either, mainly because I feel like Jumbo controlled the race quite well at the start today as well. So they've got Tom Dumoulin's dad, Martin Wainans, to try and take care of that a bit together with Leonard Hofstede. Yeah, we're making this a thing. Uh, Wainans is Dumoulin's dad, and that's a no, no, it's conspiracy it's theory not, for this one. It's, it's not Wainans, it's Martin's. What? It's Paul Martins. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so confused no, now. No, no. no. How did you see any correlation there? <laughs> it's him. He's got a beard. <laughs> Trust me, it's his dad. Look it up. Look at look at the race footage. Not not. Don't look at his little PNG file image. Look at the race footage. Paul Martins facts. It's Tom Dumoulin's dad. Okay. I guess that's how we'll, how we'll end this Vuelta stage uh, preview because I've got not much more to add to it. We've done the Giro today. We've done the Vuelta. We're in the running. We're going to uh, leave the Three Dogs de Pone Brugge for tomorrow. It's Brugge de Pone. It's the other way around um, because you are very sleepy, aren't you? Yeah, I am. That's all from us. See you tomorrow. Ciao.